Hello, sports fans, and welcome to Let Me Speak, the show that shares sports' biggest headlines explained, uninterrupted, and maybe a little audacious. I'm Joe Braverman, and today's topics we'll be discussing are the storylines to watch for during the second half of the MLB season, plus KD or Spida, which superstar is more likely to be traded before the season begins, and What's next for Kyler Murray after signing a lucrative deal with the Cardinals? It's episode 80 of Let Me Speak, and it starts right now. back once again here on thursday july 21st 2022 for the landmark 80th episode of let me speak thank you everyone for tuning in wherever you are getting this podcast i can't believe we hit 80 episodes unbelievable we were supposed to have a celebration last week but some scheduling conflicts uh but we are here we're here to celebrate and i wish it was a busier week obviously um this time of the year is usually pretty quiet in the sports world but hey we are here we continue to roll along we are celebrating 80 episodes i'm i'm still blown away uh that we have reached this far i appreciate everyone who has liked and subscribed to this podcast who continues to follow week after week uh follows us on all our social media platforms you have no idea how much the support uh, means to me as I hopefully look to kickstart uh, what is to be a great career in sports media. And obviously, you know, I said that the sports week should be busier for 80 episodes. I wish the weather was cooler because let me tell you, it is hot. And I'm not just talking like here in Massachusetts, the entire country is dealing with it. Heck, the entire world is dealing with it. The UK and England, everywhere in Europe, it's hot as heck. Uh, you know, I got the fan. I got my ceiling fan going right now. I've turned the AC off though, uh, for just a little bit because I don't want to make it seem like I'm screaming or anything. Plus, that background noise, at least in my eyes, would get kind of annoying. Uh, so I turned it off for the time being, but it's getting turned right back on. And you know, the heat wave hopefully will end uh, this weekend, but I'm done with it. I'm done with 90 degree weather. I mean, we've been dealing with like four, three or four straight days of it. There's still three more days afterwards. Uh, it's not fun. It is not fun to be uh, in a heat wave. I'd rather be uh, nice and cool than hot and sweaty, um, but it will end. And, you know, I can't say anything. I mean, we got the Texas, Oklahoma dealing with hundreds right now. So can't complain, you know, too much about it, but, you know, just hope everyone out there is staying cool got the ACs going. If you don't got any ACs, you know, get to any kind of place that gives you warmth, stay hydrated, obviously just all the basic tools uh, to quell the heat wave that's going on, on, on planet earth, basically. Uh, Hope everyone is being able to uh, maintain that. But not only is the temperature heating up, the action is going to be heating up as well as the second half of the regular season for the MLB is about to get 
underway. We got a couple games going on right now. It's a six game slate. I'm looking at it. Uh, two double headers, uh, Detroit and Oakland, New York and Houston. They've got some double headers going. Um, but really, you know, as I said, it's kind of quiet. I'm just grasping at straws for uh, what we can talk about this week. Um, but let's preview the second half of that MLB season because I really want to look at, you know, what could be making headlines uh, as the season goes along. And obviously, you know, the big headline is two weeks. In two weeks, um, it'll be the trade deadline. So that'll be a whole segment within itself. Uh, but you also have um, teams that have had a strong first half but we've seen in recent history that it's good to have a strong first half but if you don't have a a strong second half that'll do you in and ultimately the big thing I'm looking at are the two New York teams the Yankees and the Mets because they've both um, been very very strong uh, in this second half the Yankees right now with the best record uh, in all of baseball at 64 and 28 and you got the New York Mets who are leading the uh, NL East with the second best record in the national league at 58 and 35. And I really want to see if those New York teams are going to still reign supreme. Cause I mean, the Yankees before uh, the all-star break lost five of their last eight, but they took two out of three in the last series uh, at home against the Red Sox. And I look at the Yankees and how well that lineup is constructed And I said it last year that the only problem that this team had was their pitching. And they seem to have turned it around with a lockdown bullpen, like Clay Holmes as your closer, uh, Wandy Peralta is involved in there. Um, And then obviously your starting rotation is just as good. Obviously, Derek Cole leading the charge. But how much of that comes back down to earth? I mean, this, this was a team that was on pace. And I don't really like that stat that they're on pace because no one is ever on pace. But they were on pace to match or be better than arguably the greatest team in MLB history, the 1927 New York Yankees. So if you're in that same sort of conversation, you're doing something right. But they're sort of, I think they're going to come back down to earth. I still expect them to win the AL East. Um, But the division is just getting tougher. I mean, you got the Orioles who have all of a sudden come out hot back to 500. The Red Sox can turn things around uh, in a blink of an eye. The Blue Jays are still the Blue Jays with those powerful bats and the Rays continue to fly under the radar. The AL East is without a doubt the toughest division in all of baseball. And if the Yankees can at least stay afloat because they've built a big enough lead, just looking quickly at the divisions, they're 13 up on the Tampa Bay Rays. So they have plenty of room to work with, with, and it would take a historic collapse to see them not win that division. So how well do the Yankees maintain this spot? You know, that, that I think is going to be key, but then a subliminal thing within that Yankees organization Is Aaron Judge, you know, how much money is he going to continue to drive uh, with his value? Because, I mean, come on, this dude is leading the league in home runs. He's in the top five in RBIs. He's one of the, I would call, the front runner for the AL MVP, um, if you ask me. And we, we heard about, you know, the figures that the Yankees offered him. And Aaron Judge said no to that at the beginning of the year. So, if Judge continues to play like this, he's going to get 
much more than what the Yankees initially offered him, which I believe was $230 million, something like that, over 13 years, something something like that. I think this is a $300 million hitter. Whoever gives it to him, I have no idea. But Aaron Judge, if he continues to rake and hit the ball the way he's doing, he's going to get a fat paycheck. Whether it's from the Yankees or whether it's from some other team, I don't know. But the Yankees should look at this guy and say, this guy is the foundation and can get us going for another five to ten years. And you don't want to lose that at all. At all. So how well does the Yankees do? I don't know. But the Mets, I think, have got uh, some bigger problems considering the division that they play in uh, is just as, you know, it's not, it's not the AL East, but it's still just as tough when you got the Braves nipping on your heels, the Phillies who are going to get healthy, and then the Marlins and the Nats who are walkovers, but not easy walkovers. Um, looking at the Mets, you know, they started 38 and 19. They've been 20 and 15 since then, but they've got a lot more uh, depth than they did uh, in recent memories. You've got reinforcements coming with uh, Jacob DeGrom, who eventually, hopefully, will return uh, from his rehab stint and get back into that starting rotation. Put him alongside Max Scherzer, who's come back healthy and is back to Max Scherzer-like pitching. Um, I think the Mets, I hate to say it like at this moment because it's still the halfway point, but I think right now they're an early favorite to make it uh, to the World Series. I, I really do, uh, considering when you have uh, not that many options, I would say. Um, I, I think just the bats that they have are a lot better than what they had uh, last year, and their pitching uh, has got more reinforcements on the way. So I think, you know, early on, I would say the Mets are the favorite, but there's still a lot of things to happen. I mean, you obviously have the defending champs in the Atlanta Braves who are showing, hey, we don't need Freddie Freeman. I mean, they really should have Freddie Freeman. Um, but they still, you know, they brought back uh, Ronald Acuna Jr. He's healthy and he's uh, back to his ways. You got Austin Riley, uh, William Contreras, uh, guys who made the all-star team. Dansby Swanson should mention him. And then you got great pitching like Max Fried. Uh, you're hopefully going to get Charlie Morton back. Um, this is a team that I, I'm not going to say the Mets are going to run away with this division, even though I did say, uh, they'd be my favorites coming out of the National League, but it's not going to be easy because everyone sleeps on the Braves. Considering what they did last year, they were in uh, like an 89-win team that won the East, and they made it all the way to the World Series, knocking off the Astros. So I think you can't doubt the Atlanta Braves. You know, I think they're going to find a way to get into the playoffs and probably have a good run. You know, I think they can get at least to the divisional round. I don't see them getting bounced in the wild card. Um, but I think they can make a run. They can really make a run if they get hot. But I mean, they're not, they can't sit pretty either because the Phillies are right behind them. They're going to get healthy. They still have Kyle Schwarber, who's second in the majors in home runs. You're going to get Bryce Harper back eventually. You know, this is just, it's, it's a lot of inconsistencies with the Phillies that um, to me, makes it hard to say, oh, yeah, they're definitely going to make the playoffs. I can't say that, but it's they're not going to be a pushover like the Marlins or the Nats in that division. Um, so the Phillies are just as tough, and it they, they could easily get into that wild card spot because, I mean, just looking quickly 
at the wild card standings in the National League. You've got uh, in one, two, three, the Braves, the Padres, and the Phillies, but they have the tiebreaker over the Cardinals. And the Cardinals can get just as hot and even, you know, come through uh, in that division, you know, when you have Goldschmidt and Arenado uh, and all those guys. So it's not going to be easy for the Phillies, but they can sneak in there. They can really sneak in there. Uh, and then out in the West, I would say uh, the Dodgers, I, it's, it's a toss up. You know, I did say the Mets are early favorites, but if it wasn't them, it would be the Dodgers right now. Best record in the NL. And, you know, do they make a big move? Because remember the big move last year at the deadline was Max Scherzer and Trey Turner. And then, you know, just slightly, you know, grabbing Albert Pujols. Um, and they are 10 up on the Padres. So it should be no question that they win the division. Um, it's just a matter of, do they get any kind of reinforcement? You know, you still have uh, Bellinger and Betts and Muncie and the Turners. Um, how do they, how do they address it? Do they make another move, you know, to, to get some reinforcement? I think they get another arm in the bullpen. Cause I think what they thought they were getting in Craig Kimbrell didn't turn out to be uh, as their closer. Obviously it's hard to replace Kenley Jansen. Um, so if you ask me, I think a bullpen arm is going to be uh, very, very important uh, for the Dodgers to try and add at the deadline. But then you've also got, you know, the Giants were a hot team last year. Obviously they're not uh, that same way this year, but they can flip the switch just like that. Uh, with the kind of team that they are. And then you have the Padres who are going to get Fernando Tatis Jr. Uh, back, I think, in the lineup. You know, it might be August or September, something like that. But there are rumors that they could be in on Juan Soto. And if you put Juan Soto in that lineup with uh, Manny Machado, Jake Cronenworth, uh, just to name a few guys, I think the Padres can be dangerous. They can be dangerous. And it... It's a shame on me because I was sleeping on the Padres considering what they did last year with all the hype that they had. You know, they were going to challenge the Dodgers in the division. And then sure enough, they don't even make the playoffs. Um, so, you know, it's it, it's my fault for sleeping on the Padres. Uh, but I think they, they've opened everyone's eyes again. And it's a matter of can they get to the postseason and how far can they go? Because we know they can do it, but it's that postseason success that has eluded them since basically this whole new era, I guess, when you have Tatis and uh, Machado. But it'll be really interesting to see what happens in the second half of the MLB season because we know that legacies and history is made when it comes down to the last half of the baseball year. said we are grasping for straws uh at this kind of week uh in sports and something i wanted to bring up over the last couple of weeks was uh the nba because the free agency market in the offseason has basically been at a standstill since two of the top players have no one of them's requested a trade one of them is involved in trade talks and that's kevin durant and donovan mitchell and for the purpose of this week, I just want to talk about, you know, who's more likely to get dealt first, who's going to start the year with their original team. 
that's something I really wanted to uh, think about because you've got to- two totally different scenarios. You've got uh, Kevin Durant, uh, who had championship aspirations when he signed with the Brooklyn Nets, and the farthest they've gone is the semifinals. And granted, they were a big toe away from the semifinals, but you know the results say that they haven't made to they haven't made an NBA Finals and. What's going on in that Nets organization uh, basically since Durant signed? I mean, you knew he was going to be a redshirt in his first year uh, coming off the torn Achilles. Uh, comes back this year or uh, the, the following year. Looks like his old self, but again, still dealing with injury history. And then uh, this past year was just a whole lot of inconsistencies. And I think, you know, I, I keep saying it, it all attributes to Kyrie Irving considering how basically it seems undedicated he is to playing you know when you have uh in that 2020 21 year um where he's basically taking a week off uh because he wants to and then you know he's uh heels deep uh in the mud on his vaccine stance uh regarding regarding new york uh the vaccine mandates and all that which is all whole other topic but just the mannerisms that Kyrie provided, it just seems to have rubbed Kevin Durant the wrong way. And that led him to ultimately requesting this trade. And I think the Nets sort of looked at themselves in the mirror and said, we did, we basically said we would do anything, anything to win a championship. And it hasn't come to fruition. Um, considering that the Nets haven't gone past the second round. I mean, uh, the, that first uh, year they were in the bubble Kyrie didn't even go gets bounced early on uh, 2021 uh, they get bounced with James Harden and Kyrie wasn't playing because he was hurt uh, and then this year just a whole lot of ins and outs to ramping her Kyrie only playing half the games um, and then the Ben Simmons drama all that kind of stuff like that and then they get swept in the first round um, so if you ask me like it makes sense why Durant would be asking for a trade but the problem is he's been locked he's locked up for another four years in today's and in today's NBA guys can sign you know 20 year deals and they could say tomorrow I want to be gone so that's why everyone's so hesitant to probably make a deal not just that but the Nets asking price has not moved to you know we want an established star role players, and multiple draft picks. And I think you can go back um, to the initial Utah trade for Rudy Gobert where Danny Gange uh, took back four first-rounders. I think it was four, four or five first-rounders from Minnesota. And that's basically been the benchmark right now for any kind of trade, any Kyrie trade, Donovan Mitchell, Kevin Durant trade. And teams are unwilling to do that. You know, organizations, general managers, they're – sort of looking at situations in the past, you know, look at the, the James Harden situation or the, or this seat uh, situation with Durant and Irving and saying, wow, they can hold us hostage essentially um, if they want out. So we don't want to take that risk. We don't want to take that gamble, um, you know, and, you know, sometimes they just don't have the pieces, you know, as I said, the Nets asking price hasn't moved and no team has the pieces for, weird managerial reasons where it's like, you know, because DeAndre Ayton is a restricted free agent, he couldn't be traded to the Suns and Phoenix doesn't want to give up Devin Booker. 
Uh, Bam Adebayo can't be on the same roster as Ben Simmons. Um, and they don't want to give up uh, Tyler Hero or anything like that. So it's just, it's really, really complicated, the situation in Brooklyn right now, considering, you know, trying to get rid of Kevin Durant, trying to trade him. And more and more is coming out that it's more likely he's going to stay with the Nets. Like the Nets are going to keep that core of Durant, Irving, and Simmons, at least for the start of the season. Now, I don't know how that's going to translate. You know, I was kind of, I mentioned this to uh, one of my fellow producers over at WEI is that this is still a team that can be maybe not championship contenders, considering like the sort of chaotic um, situation um, in the front office and in the organization, you know, with Durant asking for a trade um, and Irving, all that. Basically, Irving picked up his option because he didn't have any other choice. Um, but I think that it, it's that sort of front office thing that would make me think, okay, maybe they're sort of a four or five seed, maybe not like a championship contender. Because I think the East, basically, it starts with the Bucks and the Celtics, not in any particular order, followed by the Sixers and the Heat, and then everyone else. So, you know, I, I think I have more faith that Durant actually stays with the Nets uh, than gets traded before the start of the year. But that's one side of the story. The other side of the story is the Utah situation. And as I mentioned, it was sort of that Rudy Gobert trade with the Wolves from the Jazz that sort of set this benchmark as to basically Utah going in a full rebuild and why uh, asking prices are so high. Um, and we've heard reports that Danny Ainge has asked for six first rounders, you know, considering the fact that he got four first rounders from uh, the Minnesota trade with Gobert. And we're hearing that with the Knicks um, is the predominant team uh, in trade discussions with Donovan Mitchell. Now, before I dive deep into Mitchell, I'm wondering why Danny Ainge would want to blow everything up or have that opportunity. I get he, he has a history of it with, um, you know, blowing up uh, 2007, you know, before, uh, Garnett and Allen and that big three with the Celtics. But then when he blew things up uh, and traded Garnett and Allen to Brooklyn and eventually those picks and players turned into, you know, predominant guys like Isaiah Thomas, Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum, just to name a few guys. Um, so I get it. I get it. And, you know, you're not called Trader Danny uh, for no reason. Um, but the, the fact that Donovan Mitchell is a 25 year old, uh, superstar who's I think probably hitting the prime of his career you don't want to build around that I mean outside you know you don't have Gobert but you still have uh Boyan Bogdanovich uh as a great shooter you have Jordan Clarkson coming off the bench and even the pieces that you picked up Patrick Beverly we've seen as a dog on defense um Vanderbilt Kogi uh, or not a Kogi excuse me um, but just a couple of other guys like Utah can still be a play in team considering what that Western conference looks like. I mean, the Lakers are still the Lakers. The Spurs are still the Spurs and the Blazers don't look like they're getting any better. Um, so this is a Utah team that could still make the playoffs and maybe not for a full fledged rebuild. And I think they could still be good if they just add a few pieces surrounding Donovan Mitchell. I think that's the most important thing. So I, I don't know why Danny Ainge would want to have any possibility of trading Donovan Mitchell. Cause I think he's a great piece to have. 
And I granted he's sort of a defensive liability with his size. Um, but still, I would rather take Donovan Mitchell than probably uh, a good 60% of the league on my roster, if you ask me. You know, uh, that that's what I would say. And it, it seems like, you know, just listening to reports that um, Mitchell will eventually become a Nick, but it's just a matter of, like, when it's going to happen. Um, so I think that it, to answer the overall premise – I think Mitchell is more likely to be traded than Kevin Durant because eventually as time goes on, the price is going to decline either that or the Knicks are going to be suckered to be like, sure, we care about winning so much. We'll give you a six first rounders and Julius Randall and Obi Toppin and a bunch of other guys. You know, the Knicks are just that dumb of an organization because I mean, even if they do get Mitchell and they pair him with uh, Jalen Brunson, I still don't think the Knicks are going anywhere. If you ask me, they haven't gotten anywhere close to that upper echelon of the Eastern conference, but it is still only July Uh, camps. Don't get uh, underway until September preseason and October. So there's still a lot of things that can happen in this off season of the NBA. As I continue to stress over and over and over, this week is very, very slow. Not a lot of action going on, but that's not stopping us from finding a couple other topics to dive into in a hurry. So let's get right into Quick Hits. And we start with the big news that came out today as we're recording. Kyler Murray is back with the Cardinals, and he is there for a long time right now. Five years, $230.5 million, including $160 million guaranteed. I think it's, I read that like that was with injury, and 105 was guaranteed if he did get hurt or something like that. But good for Arizona because... Kyler is arguably, if he continues on this path, he's been the best Cardinals quarterback in a, in a very long time. You know, with uh, no no disrespect to Kurt Warner in those last couple of years or uh, Carson Palmer. But this guy is just so electric. And um, with his overall play, I think he's earned it. The problem that he's been dealing with is that second half of the stretch with him and Cliff Kingsbury is they've gotten off to hot starts, but they start to falter near the end. And hopefully with a couple more years in the league for both uh, Cliff Kingsbury, who's still a relatively young guy, um, and with Kyler Murray, that they can hopefully develop this kind of maturity and understand, okay, this is what has to happen in the second part of the season because it's not how you start, it's how you finish. And you obviously saw what happened in a couple of games against the Rams. Just, Just that second half of the season was not pretty for Arizona at all. And that was a team I thought was going to be really good. You know, I think they started like 10 and one or something like that. And then they faltered to uh, 12 and uh, five or something like that. Um, so I, I hope that Kyler does have success with this new contract. And luckily everyone in Arizona and who are fans of the Cardinals can take a big sigh of relief because Kyler is here to stay. And he's not the only superstar that re-signed. James Harden re-signed and took a substantial pay cut, I might add, with the Philadelphia 76ers. Two years and 68 
$1.6 million. So if you do that math, that's basically 33 and a half, 33 million dollars a year, which is much less than what he was making when he initially was traded uh, to the 76ers. And I gotta be honest, this is something I was not expecting uh, from James Hart. You know, considering this is a guy who basically forced his way out of Houston, forced his way out of Brooklyn, and has shown to be a very selfish player, has taken the selfless route and has told Philly, basically, I'll take the pay cut, give me whatever's left, and go make a championship team. Because I I honestly think he sort of looks in the mirror and saw what he did in the playoffs and saying, okay, maybe I'm not this elite scorer that I used to be when I was with the Rockets. Um, but he's still a good facilitator. He is a triple-double threat. And I think he's understanding that he himself is not going to carry a team. And he's not that same guy that he used to be. So that's why he took a pay cut and brought in guys like Daniel House and P.J. Tucker. You know, maybe that opens the door for some more signings out there. So props to James Harden for taking the selfless route. And who knows, maybe that leads to a championship. You know, maybe, as I said earlier on, I put them in like the top three of the East with uh, Milwaukee and Boston. Um, but who knows, that could, this deal could lead to a possible ring for the 76ers. As it seems like it's been for the whole month in the world of golf, more names are leaving the PGA to join the Live Tour, which is backed by uh, Saudi Arabia, which is why there's a bunch of controversy. Uh, the names that we've seen recently, uh, Henrik Stenson, no longer the European Ryder Cup captain because he has left for the Live Tour. David Faraday, who's one of the top analysts for NBC when they have golf coverage, he's gone as an analyst. And now there's reports that Charles Barkley is in talk for an analyst role, uh, possibly lift the, with uh, the Live Tour. Uh, we've heard talks that he's going to play in the Live Tour Pro-Am uh, upcoming. And I'm honestly surprised that Chuck would sort of take this route uh, considering that, you know, he is well-beloved. And I thought for him, image uh, would be very, very important. Um, you know, he does have no filter, obviously. And he's got eyes, you know, not just from the basketball world, but the entire sports world are centered around him. And this is a guy who makes a headline, it seems like, once a week for whether he's got any kind of talk or if he has a comedic moment on Inside the NBA. Um, it, it surprises me that... Um, Chuck would be sort of in talk. I mean, he's in talks with Liv. It doesn't mean he's, you know, going over there. He's just talking right now. And we heard today that, you know, he's ready for any kind of brushback or blowback that he gets uh, with any kind of commercial deals that he has. But I like Barkley. You know, I'm not I'm not going to dispute, you know, why, because everyone's got their different reasons for leaving the Live tour. Uh, for the Live Tour, I should say, from the PGA. Um, but it it makes sense why Liv would go after Charles Barkley because he's a name that attracts eyeballs, and that's essentially what Liv is looking for. I mean, they don't have a TV deal yet, but that's probably upcoming. They continue to get more names from the PGA. They might get Cameron Smith, uh, who just won the British Open. Um, so there's still the, – the Live continues to grow, and if they get Charles Barkley as an analyst for uh, some of their tournaments – it's going to change the game for the uh, little feud between PGA and Liv. 
quickly back to baseball. And as I briefly mentioned, Juan Soto on the trade market. Well, why is he on the trade market is wondering. Well, if you've been living under a cave, the Washington Nationals offered him 15 years and $440 million as an extension, and he rejected it. So what do what does Washington do? They go right away and say, hey, we're going to trade him. We're, uh, we're not going to pay that. So I'm just... I'm trying to do the math really quickly in my head. That's roughly about 33 million or 20, 29 million, I would guess. So that's, you know, it's less than uh, just thinking a number Stanton, Harper, Tatis, Jr. So I, I think he's looking for that average annual value. I don't think he's looking for like a long term commitment. And honestly, the Nationals are just making it from bad to worse because they had to fly him commercial uh, to Los Angeles for the All-Star break. I mean, this is just another situation that Washington just continues to fumble. You got to keep in mind, this is a team that won the World Series three years ago in 2019 with Juan Soto as a rookie, basically, in like his first year or two. But they lost Bryce Harper for nothing. They lost Anthony Rendon for nothing. Um... I don't think they've got a whole lot back for Scherzer and Trey Turner. So if Juan Soto is that last piece that goes, you're telling me that three years after winning a World Series, the whole core of that team is gone. Like, what is Washington doing? They don't have a future. This is a rebuild that's probably going to take about five to ten years if Juan Soto is on the trade market. So I, I get why the Nationals are doing it because they want to get something back because they've been blown, you know, they've been blown up for letting some superstars uh, go. But hey, that's just business. And the Nationals are going to be stinking for a whole lot longer if Juan Soto is no longer on the team. Lastly, we go to another contract talk, but this one has been officially signed by a head coach in college football. Kirby Smart just got a whole lot richer from the University of Georgia, signing an extension for 10 years and $112.5 million with the University of Georgia. And hey, if you just won the national championship, it makes sense why you're getting paid this much. It makes sense. Because Kirby Smart, I think, in terms of head coaches in college football, probably top five, if you ask me. I'd put him up there with Saban, uh, Dabble Sweeney. Uh, for the moment, I would say Lincoln Riley. Uh, and then uh, Harbaugh, Jim Harbaugh. You know, just naming quick ones off the top of my head in no particular order. But he is up there. I mean, he won a national championship. He beat Alabama. So uh, it makes sense why Georgia wants to say, you know what? This is our guy. This is our recruiter, our coach. This is a guy who's going to continue to shine that spotlight on University of Georgia football. So I totally get why Kirby Smart uh, is taking this kind of pay raise. But if I'm any kind of player, you know, who's got like any kind of NIL deals, I'm sort of looking at that and saying, wait a minute, our coach is getting paid that much. You know, where are the funds for us players or uh, anything like that. So if if I was like playing for, for Georgia, I'd be going up to like, you know, campus and the, uh, the boosters or whatever and saying like, where's that kind of money for us? Huh? How about that? <laughs> um, but 
you know, Georgia is in a good state, you know, coming off of a national championship. So uh, if they want to pay their head coach who just won a title and beat the almighty Alabama Crimson Tide, have at it. Have at it if you ask me. You know, this is an organization and, and a school that I think is going to be good for a couple more years now that Kirby Smart is locked up. And that is a wrap-up on this week's edition of Quick Hits. time of the show where we get into our let's get local segment of the week and this one again subdued because of a slow week in sports um but we have to talk red Sox, and that's all we're going to talk about in this segment because let's be honest it is not pretty not pretty on the field not pretty off the field and this is something i've wanted to touch on for for quite a bit of time because we, we were off last week and I was going to talk about, oh, this team is struggling, you know, what they were doing uh, on the field. But now more developments are coming off the field and we're starting to hear it from outside sources. I mean, there was a, a bunch of quotes by John Henry. Uh, we heard a little bit from Heim Bloom a little bit and the players. So, you know, it, it's basically this is going to be two separate entities for the Sox. So let's talk about what they're doing on the field and what they're doing on the field stinks right now. Okay absolutely stinks no one in that lineup outside of the guy you're supposed to be paying Raphael Devers is doing anything you're getting no power from your three four five six hitter basically your middle of the lineup which is your supply for power is not providing any power yeah they're getting hits and they're getting on base but deep teams when you put them in the three spot or the four spot are looking for long bombs they're looking for homers. They're looking for multiple RBIs. And no one is doing that outside of Rafael Devers. JD is, I don't know if age is catching up to him or something like that, but he's basically swinging at everything and is not barely making any contact. Xander Bogarts has seven home runs this year, I believe. Seven. Uh, just getting the number real quick. It's nice to have a, a 313 average, but if you're not hitting any home runs, you're, you're screwed. Essentially, you're essentially screwed. I think I I think Bogart's like seven home runs has to be like within like the past month or so. But just no, it's seven on the year. I mean, come on, look at look at home runs right now. I'm just looking at it real quick. Rafi Devers has 22. Trevor Story has 15, but he's only hitting 221. Okay, JD has nine home runs. Bogart's has seven. Verdugo has six. Um, it, it's just it's. This is not a major league lineup, okay? You take if you take out Rafi Devers uh, in that lineup, this is not a major league lineup. You know, Jaron Duran at that leadoff spot is coming down to earth. You know, he's not getting on base as much. You've got Bobby Dahlbeck and Franchi Cordero who can't hit for crap right now, and it's an absolute shame that either of them has to play first base. Okay, you got Jackie Bradley Jr. who can't hit the side of a boat right now or uh, side of a barn i think that's the uh the old uh, expression he's hitting 202 dahlbeck is hitting 205 okay and i get there's a bunch of injuries and stuff like that you have no arroyo you have no kike uh in your lineup but still 
your power hitters, the guys who should be there. I, it's so frustrating. And obviously the pitching is doing as much as they can, but look at the buzz saws that they've been hitting. You know, they've hit the Rays, the Blue Jays, the Yankees multiple times. You know, it, it's, I'll talk about it with like upper management, but this is where it all circles back to, but come on. I mean, look at what's happened um, since uh, that sweep against the guardians. They were 42 and 31 uh, before then. Now they're 48 and 45. You want to do the math real quick. That means they're eight and 14 in their last 22 games, eight and 14 against division teams. They have not won a division series or they haven't won a series against teams in their division. And that includes the Orioles. And you got them at the weakest point at the beginning of the year. Okay. Now you have to play the Orioles and it's no longer a walk in the park. Okay. This is why this team is struggling because they actually have to play teams in their division. Now, granted, every team in the division is, you know, tops. As I said earlier, it's the top division in baseball. But if you're getting blown out in games like this, I mean, look at look at those Yankee games, losing 12 to 5, losing 14 to 1, losing 13 to 2. When you have your top hit pitchers like Nick Pavetta on the mound and Chris Sale, which by the way, he's now gone, you know, after thinking that was a life, uh, that was an injection right then and there. Um, and then you have these low scoring games, like against the Rays, you lose three, two, you lose four, one, you lose five, four, because your lineup can't do anything and they can't hit for power. So I just don't know what Heim Bloom is thinking of. And that segues into the next part of this is what is management doing? You know, I feel like Heim Bloom is basically the puppet and John Henry is sort of that puppet master saying, do this, do that, do this, do that. Okay. Because what does he do? He's got a great hitter at first base. Granted, he's not the top defensive first baseman you want there, but you've got a hitter who is well-disciplined like Kyle Schwarber, who can hit for power, who can get on base. And what do you do? You just let him walk. You only give him like a minimal amount and you let him sign for the Phillies for like 20 million. You could have easily afforded that. But instead, Heimbloom decides to go to the bargain bin and goes for a bunch of discount players who there's a reason why they're only worth two million and four million dollars a year. I'm talking guys like Jake Diekman, guys like Matt Strom, uh guy just little guys like that. And you're telling me that oh, this team isn't playing well with what I gave them. I mean, come on. Come on, Heimbloom. Like, this literally frustrates me to the point where if I cur- could curse out on this podcast, I would. There would be a lot of F-bombs and S-bombs going out there. But I wouldn't be so mad at Bloom if I didn't hear from John Henry, okay? John Henry has talked about the situation with Rafi Devers, signing him to ex- an extension, with Bogarts, who is uh, a free agency. You got to remember, in the offseason, before the season began, it was basically a one-year boost, like a one-year, I think, like 20 million or 30 million extension that management offered Bogarts, okay, which is basically a slap in the face. And John Henry, in this uh, article in the Boston Globe, basically says, oh, it's a two-way street. You know, we're offering all we can, and it's up to the player to decide what they want. Really? Really? When you offer a guy... One year and 
$20 million for a guy who's been a part of your organization for basically 10 years, who helped provide you two World Series, you want to give him a one-year extension? Now, granted, he's not playing well, but in terms of the locker room and the clubhouse and the leadership, that's a guy I want. I would want Xander Bogarts in that clubhouse to be one of my leaders, okay? And if you're not going to respect him like that, it makes sense why you would want to walk out. Same thing with Rafi Devers. If you're not going to offer him the ballpark even close to what you see guys like Juan Soto or uh, Giancarlo Stanton or Mike Trout or Fernando Tatis Jr., if you're not even coming close to that, you got to keep in mind, this guy is 24. He's going to be 25 years old. You sign him to that 10-year deal, you're, you're in, you have a window of success for 10 years, okay? Hein Bloom and John Henry have to realize this is Boston freaking Massachusetts. This is not Tampa Bay. This is not Texas. This isn't a low market team. This is the Boston Red Sox. This is a team that's paid like $35 million for guys that don't even deserve it. Like Manny Ramirez near the end of his career, like Pablo Sandoval, Hanley Ramirez, David Price, guys that don't deserve it and are from the outside. Where is your homegrown talent that you easily could have paid this money for? Mookie Betts, he's out in LA winning another World Series and making all-star teams. Andrew Benintendi, he's making an all-star team and is actually being, actually has good numbers now and didn't give up on him early. Jackie Bradley Jr. is back with you, but you should have given up on him early. And now you got a possibility that you're going to lose Devers, Bogarts. You might not re-sign Nathan Evaldi. You're locked in with Chris Sale. You're telling me that core, you know, I talked about with the Nationals and Juan Soto, that this is a team that only four years ago is coming off a World Series. And you're telling me that your core, that you could have probably gone a good 10 years with, is now going to be gone by the trade deadline in two weeks. Are you kidding me? Are you actually kidding me? John Henry has to be the most delusional owner in Boston right now. You look at guys who have been able to bridge it. Look at Robert Kraft and what the Patriots have done. They have bridged from Tom Brady to Mac Jones, and they are a playoff team. They're not a championship team, but at least they're being successful. Look at the Celtics, the way they've sort of retooled from Danny Ainge to Brad Stevens. They didn't blow things up, but it was one bad year where they still made the playoffs, but were able to retool and get to an NBA Finals. You know, the Bruins are probably that slight argument because no one knows what Don Sweeney and Cam Neely are doing with that organization, but at least they make the playoffs and are continue to be in the conversation, at least in the beginning of the year, as Stanley Cup contenders, you know, in years past. So what the Red Sox are doing are basically saying, even though we are Boston, Massachusetts, and we're this high-priced team, we don't want to pay the luxury tax by a bunch of million, millions of dollars. We don't care. We'll sign guys from the outside or whatever to these big-time contracts. You know, our homegrown talent, we're just going to use uh, as discount pieces to get better talent. That's not the way it works. It's not the way it works, okay? So, I mean, I could talk about this week after week about how shameful it is that Heim Bloom and John Henry have let the situation with not only Rafael Devers, but Xander Bogarts go this far. 
you know, considering all the help that you need, okay? You already have Devers and Bogarts. I get it. But you're going to disregard the bullpen and basically drive them away saying, oh, he's not doing anything. I mean, remember last year at the deadline when all they did was get Kyle Schwarber, uh, Austin Davis, and Hansel Robles? What did the clubhouse do? They basically were turned off from management saying, hmm, maybe this guy doesn't really care about us winning or not, okay? So it could easily happen again. It could easily happen again. And if Bloom is not a buyer, and if, if he's a seller, and he decides to get rid of Bogarts, and he decides to get rid of Devers, his job should be fired on the spot, on the spot. And honestly, I don't even know if John Henry should be an owner of the Red Sox, considering he's not investing enough in this team. I mean, look at what he did um, in years past. He sold out. He has sold out for these championship teams. He went and signed a bunch of money for Dice K. What did that lead to? A World Series in 2007. He sold out to go get uh, J.D. Martinez and um, sign Chris Sale and all these other guys, making big trades to get Nathan Nivaldi and stuff like that. What does that lead to? A World Series, okay? So you're telling me that now, in 2022, when you've been doing this same strategy for roughly 20 years, you now want to stop paying money? Give me a better excuse than that. I mean, come on. This is, I'm just totally ranting right here. Now I'm just like getting everything off my chest. You know, if at the trade deadline in two weeks, if Bloom does not do a single thing, you know, and I think Red Sox fans understand this, that it's not the, you know, players play the game, coaches coach, and manage or uh, managers manage and the front office does whatever they want. But I think the majority of Red Sox fans look at what's happening up in the front office and says what they have set up for the Boston Red Sox, not just for this year, but for years to come means that it's going to be a bunch of rebuilding years. Like what year are you building for? Are you building for 2027 when Tristan Cassis comes up and maybe becomes an all elite player? Like, it's ridiculous what management is doing right now. But hopefully, things can turn around for the Red Sox. And it's nice in the second half where you open up with a 10-game homestand. I mean, you got your first three starting this weekend against Toronto. Then you got Cleveland. And then you got Milwaukee. If you don't go 500, okay? If you don't go 500, season's over, okay? The division is just too tough right now. It's too tough, and if if you can't come out of the whole year without winning one division series, I mean, you don't even deserve to be uh, – you don't even deserve to be playing, if you ask me. But there's so much to diagnose about the Red Sox. You know, I've gotten all I've gotten to get out, at least for this week, and I'm just looking forward to them getting back on the field and hopefully taking our mind off the chaos in the front office for the Red Sox. our show it's our lol moment of the week and this week is kind of a, a blessing in disguise because it's so quiet you had the espies go on you know everyone was able to attend because basically all the seasons were on break 
or off season. So we got to see a lot of uh, great moments, which before we get into the LOL, I just got to say, Dick Vitale's speech probably is up there with Jim Bobano's uh, don't ever give up speech um, at the SB awards. That's definitely up there. And then just a bunch of great moments um, to see uh, the anniversary for title nine, the tribute to Brittany Griner. Um, I thought there were a lot of great moments, but I think there was one moment uh, in particular that I think stands out for the LOL moment. Um, and it might be, it might be a little 50, 50 or whatever for if people thought it found it funny or not, but I think it deserves the moment. So this week's LOL moment of the week goes to Draymond Green. So obviously the Warriors had to be at the ESPYs because they had just won the championship. And Steph Curry was the host, which, by the way, I'm going to add, he wasn't fantastic, but he wasn't horrible. I think he was just kind of the middle. I mean, it's a difficult task to ask athletes to sort of be like funny and uh, be comedic and sort of like poke fun at themselves. I mean, we we've seen it in uh, a word show past with whenever athletes get involved, they sort of poke fun at themselves. Steph really didn't do that. He rather poked fun at everyone else, which by the way, I'm salty about those couple Boston jokes that he made at the expense of Grant Williams, you know, saying, Oh, I might let you wear this ring. And then he said like, I'm the Boston Celtics daddy or something like that. Um, but it's the moment uh, with his teammate Draymond Green. So this the segment has Steph Curry. He's going to present someone or introduce the next presenters, and he gets interrupted by the Draymond Green show, which is his podcast. And he's sitting there with Lil Rel Howery, and honestly, Lil Rel made the segment because he he had the one liners. He he was uh, he was pretty funny. Uh, in that segment, you know, my, my favorite was like, uh, Chloe Kim, I like you because you got two Kardashian names. So that was pretty funny. Um, but it's the moment where, uh, which basically ends it. And Steph brings out a security guy and Draymond says, you know what? I've been kicked out of more important things. So, I mean, that kind of flew over the audience's head because he was kind of getting up and wasn't really like in the microphone or whatever, but I just thought the moment was like, you know, he can laugh at himself at least. And I don't know if Steph Curry was able to do that. Um, you know, he had a segment where he was making jokes with his family, um, but he didn't really, he didn't really poke anything at himself. He took shots at LeBron uh, and the Lakers. Obviously I mentioned the Celtics, you know, he threw the Astros out there um, and the Sacramento Kings. Um, so I, I didn't think he was a great host. Uh, my, my favorite segment I will say from the SBs was uh, his moment with Jay Farrell because Jay Farrell was, funny as heck saying you know Steph you made it you made it the the premise you know it it's kind of funny but Pharaoh breaking out those impressions of uh Shannon Sharp and then uh Shaq and uh Barkley and Stephen A just Jay Farrell just makes me laugh every single time um but it's the moment that Draymond Green gets involved uh decides that his podcast is going to interrupt the SBs. I thought was probably the funny moment from uh the whole show you know, him and Lil Rel basically uh, doing their own show. Um, but I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't fantastic. I'm, I'm just going to add it right there. It was not a fantastic show. It had the great moments, as I mentioned, like Dickie V, Title IX, all that kind of stuff. But um, for an LOL moment, I thought the best moment had to have been when Draymond Green interrupted and the, the quick one-liner about that. I just, I, I was one of the few people who actually noticed that. I don't think anyone in the crowd noticed that when he said that line. Um, but I was a big fan of that line. So 
Draymond for poking fun at your uh, podcast, uh, interrupting your, your teammate, Steph Curry, and just having some fun at the ESPYs. You have landed yourself into this week's LOL moment of the week. So that is a wrap up on this edition of Let Me Speak. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. If you're listening to us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or watching us on YouTube, make sure you like and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get it and follow our pages on social media. That's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. All you got to do is search Let Me Speak Podcast. And remember, as always, if you got a point you got to get across, just let the whole world know. Shut up and let me speak.